0: Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, please do consider supporting the bookshop by making a purchase from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com. There, you'll be able to find the titles discussed on today's episode, themed book boxes, our popular Year of Reading subscription, as well as gifts and merchandise, including our brand new Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt. All books come inked with our famous bookshop stamp and can be shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You might also consider joining Friends of Shakespeare and Company, a membership programme we created to support the bookshop's activities during a difficult 2021. The first instalment is now available for members and features exclusive contributions from Natalie Portman, Deborah Levy, Kartika Nair and George Saunders. Visit friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com to find out more. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. This week, I'm thrilled to be talking with Rosa Rankin-G about Dreamland, her new novel that reimagines the British seaside resort of Margate in a distressingly near future beset by rising tides of both the maritime and right-wing political variety. The novel has shades of J.G. Ballard and inflections of Margaret Atwood, but also a meticulously crafted aesthetic and linguistic playfulness that are rank G's own. We're speaking on publication day, so the reviews are just starting to come in. But The Observer has already said Dreamland possesses seat edge tension and heartbreaking devastation, while Brit Bennett has called it a beautiful book, thought provoking, eerily prescient and very witty. Rosa, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Adam, and thank you for that very, very lovely introduction.
0: Well, my pleasure. And congratulations on the book. Um, obviously, you know, we would have liked to have you in Shakespeare and Company for uh, an event on launch day or shortly thereafter. And obviously we can't do that um, at the moment. So, you know, maybe maybe a few months down the line we can do something. But just for our listeners um, at home, could you tell us where you are at the moment? Give them a little bit of a description.
1: Um, yes, and first of all, you won't be able to stop me. I'll be I'll be coming to Shakespeare and Company and trying to force myself to do an event there, whether <laughs> it's welcome or not. I am in Ramsgate, which is um a town in um on the Isle of Thanet, which is the kind of novel off the off off the coast of Kent. Um mm-hmm. and the novel Dreamland is set in Margate, which is about a two-hour walk round the coast or about an 18-minute drive to be very specific um i've lived here for the last two years and um yeah I, I i really love it i'm on the west cliff my parents are on the other cliff um and yeah
0: ramsgate. and so so ramsgate uh, you said you lived there for two years and yet the I, i've seen that you've talked about um this book in various interviews so it's taken you quite a few years to <laughs> yeah. to write so was it was it in some way that the Were you in that neck of the woods anyway, or did the, did the research for the novel kind of? Yes, yeah, so, convince you to move there. So
1: my my um mum changed credit cards when I was about 13, 14, and we got a free night in a Ramada Jarvis hotel of her choice, and we chose the one in Ramsgate, which I don't think I don't think we'd been to the Isle of Thanet before. Um it's now the Travelodge, and it's kind mm-hmm. of in the harbour. And, and we just loved mm-hmm. it so much. And I'd come back for holidays with friends, and I recently found pictures of me and my best friend Dunya wearing like very flammable clothing on the beach, um, just being teenagers and having fun and then my parents moved full time about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and I stayed with them a lot and as you know, I lived in Paris for a long time in my twenties, but I stayed with them a lot, and I really knew quite instinctively I wanted to write about um, write about it it, it write about mm-hmm. um, write about this place, and you know the British seaside in all of its forms has always obsessed me i mean my first book the last kings of sark is set on an island it's kind of coastal rather than seaside resort and those are like totally different aesthetics but the british seaside yeah has always just completely captured my imagination and and, and
0: yeah. yeah it's it's true they i mean the the british seaside resort does have its own very particular aesthetic like so i grew up in bournemouth which is uh quite a I mean, it's in many ways quite different to Margate, but the, you know there is definitely a, a certain amount of overlap. Um, now, this podcast has listeners uh, obviously in the UK, but also um, in the United States and around the world, and uh, they might be wondering now what is that particular aesthetic like. If you had to sort of give us a little description of the the British seaside resort, how would you?
1: Yeah, how would you I, sum it up? I've been trying to think about what it is that captures my imagination imagination so much and what I've what I've boiled it down to is this idea of there's a real optimism and it's an optimism I share because I live here but it's set up for all of these days of sun but the days mm-hmm. of sun don't always come but you have these kind of seafront veneers of places selling buckets and spades and parasols and these, this idea of hope and holidays and so frequently that that kind of hope and what we imagine it will be like is kind of defeated in some way. And I don't, I don't think that in a negative light, I think it's kind of fundamentally like British in some way and it's in its irony. Um, I don't know, they, they occupy a, a very literal edge. And in that way, like even the word seaside, it kind of is like a seesaw. You're always going back and forth between these different things. It's kind of glitz and glamour and then it's real, real grit too. And and Margate, mm-hmm. the reason why Margate is so interesting to me is because it is a kind of, it's a very intense iteration of a British seaside town and mm-hmm. it's these very i mean i I say this i've said this phrase before but it has these roller coaster highs and lows in a in a very extreme way and for for listeners who don't know about margate i think a a kind of introduction's useful um it was one of the first like the pioneering british seaside resorts it had bathing houses and was very kind of well-to-do and dukes and duchesses spent their summers there there were sanatoriums and then as kind of travel to london the times got kind of quicker it became a lot more popular um mm-hmm. and you know rather than just dukes and duchesses there were there was an abundance of people um coming down and then what happened was cheap flights um to europe mm-hmm. took off and the idea of the british holiday kind of fell out of vogue um and that coincided with a, a real economic downturn um in the UK in the 80s, and 90s, and so many seaside resorts then. And this, is so you know, what's true for Margate is true for many of these big coastals mm-hmm. too. And, and Margate in particular, um, during this economic downturn, lots of the empty hotels and and BNBs um, were found new use as homes for vulnerable populations in London who were basically relocated and shipped. The edge of the country um, mm. currently now this is a very long answer but do you think it's important context for the book currently now margate is going through a warp speed gentrification um, how mm-hmm. prices have rocketed it's kind of got this like art um gauze on top of it and, and, and lots of real artists then and, and this isn't to say anything negative about the people who are moving there with their hopes and dreams as all people do when they move to a new place but it's causing another displacement again. That population that was sent to Margate decades ago and over the last decades are being kind of, their future there is becoming foreshortened by the fact that rents skyrocketing. So Mm -hmm. it's really gone through these ups and downs. And when you have ups and downs, it makes it easier to imagine what, that down might look like in the future or to you imagine you know particularly with the within the context of climate change so that's the mm. a long but big why british seaside and why kind of Margate.
0: no i think it is useful and i think it's it's also because um now I, do, I, do, I personally don't think the term sort of post-apocalyptic is particularly accurate for for this book i mean i, th- I think that i I think there is a certain element of that, but still, you know, definitely said in the near future. Definitely, like as you, the tides have turned mm-hmm. in a way. And normally, in, in books that that uh, do want to show the kind of the, the collapse of society or the decay of society, you will often find them taking place either in a sort of an urban centre, so you know, somewhere somewhere like London, or in some sort of desolate sort of countryside. Um, and it was seemed fascinating to me that you chose this particular um this particular setting actually um because there it seems to be one of these things that sort of it will decay and it will degenerate but it won't sort of necessarily do so in a way that it will be unrecognizable because there will always be the sea for example um and, and i'm just curious about the sort of the, the the challenges and some of the um sort of benefits you found while writing of choosing Margate as a, as a sort of, um, as a location for exploring yeah. the sort of the near future collapse of society. I'm
1: really glad that you, you know, bring up the idea that it's not post-apocalyptic. And I think that's really important. I love some of those. I love many novels and films that jump cut to the kind of the after and the post-apocalyptic. But I really wanted it to be very near future. I'm more interested in the during, the kind of like slow degradation, deterioration, rather than there being one one event that changes everything Mm -hmm. you know so I think um I think I just want to say thank you for for noticing that but what no noticing (laughs) are you mentioning um it's it's interesting when you're writing in the near future um you do and particularly one where things are things are not going well necessarily I think for a long time I was living with a very specific uh focus or, or lens on that I was looking for those details that I felt would belong in this world that I was writing um but actually what I think made the novel feel more real and more alive is making sure that the lens was was kind of trained on both things yes you have all of the all of the symptoms of a society which um Is is in decline and people who are being abandoned but you also have the sea is an eternal beauty and Mm -hmm. when those I think when those things kind of come together I think that's what makes it feel more um authentic too and not to say that these kind of far-flung post-apocalyptic landscapes aren't authentic um we none of us have been there so we don't really know but I I for me as I brought it closer to Contemporary social reality, particularly in the way that people kind of like talk and interact, that was when it felt like it was working. And for Margate itself, like I, the way I've always written has been to kind of collect images, maybe change them a little bit, but Margate is a sea of strange images, you know? (laughs) And, And so I think. I do think the novel is quite atmospheric. I think a lot of the atmosphere is just the place itself, that if you write about it, it kind of comes through whoever is writing about it.
0: Yeah. Um, what, what I'm just It just made me think when you were saying that, that it's, I guess one of the things that makes it sort of easier writing about a sort of a distant future is that you don't have to reckon with contemporary political events. When you're writing a near-future novel um, – Suddenly you I mean I, I I think I suppose I'm thinking of this particularly because of the last few yeah. years we've lived through, since say twenty fifteen, when you know, we weren't expecting the Brexit vote, we weren't expecting Trump's election, we weren't expecting, you know, in Paris the various attacks, um the pandemic, obviously. Um it's it must be it must present its own particular challenges, I guess. Uh trying to kind of to, to, to manage a near future when the present you're living in is shifting so much under your feet.
1: Totally. And, and yeah, I mean, bizarre – not bizarrely enough, I don't have any kind of, like, claim to being to, – to reading tea leaves or, or reading the future at all, but I didn't have to do that much. I was – when Trump and Brexit happened, I just felt odd because it just aligned with, with what was happening in the mm. – anyway, so that didn't require that much um, – outpacing necessarily it was just like oh man he's giving me like the world keeps on giving spoilers type thing Mm. but (laughs) um with the pandemic I was like oh god right (laughs) I've just like been doing this near future for so long and the whole thing is going to just, you know, we we are now living at a time where the world's going to be unrecognisable going forward with all of this stuff. And I was just like, oh, well, that is a shame. I mean, it's not the biggest shame considering everything that's going on in the world right now, but I just, I think we all, I've I, I realised, I think we all realised as a society that actually what the pandemic showed us as it pushed on was that those who started with the least paid the greatest financial Mm -hmm. cost, be it in terms of risk to their life, financial losses, living conditions, whereas people who were richer were able to have buffers, sometimes moved house, got gardens, you know, were able to remove themselves from the firing line in in many ways. And I think, you know, and I think in many ways, I realised with with a sense of horror that the pandemic was actually going to make this future slightly more, um, plausible even Mm -hmm. and I think that you know you (laughs) we hear people saying well no one's going to shake hands no one's going to hug anymore I just I just I really don't think that that is true in the periods Uh, of relaxed slightly more you know relaxed um laws I guess um that we've we've had even over the course of the pandemic people have gone straight we've been doing this for millennia people mm -hmm. inbuilt whereas I do think that the biggest repercussions will be the financial devastation and I think that the largest burden of that will be um, people who have 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 less and will be probably um, you know a return to austerity i can see that on the horizon when i say i can see it i I really there's there's no you just have to i think so much of the near future is just looking at the recent past we Mm -hmm. have all of that there empirically so Mm -hmm. so yeah and that's the kind of situation in dreamland there's been this there are there are tiny flecks of references to to the pandemic but they're really tiny because at first i wrote them in a bit bigger and i just didn't Thing. It just didn't feel feel real to me, so I really penned uh-huh. them back. But there is this sense of like a debt that needs to be paid back, um, and who's going to pay it, and how are they going mm. to basically?
0: We'll uh, we'll come on to talk about some of the sort of specific um, policies and sort of uh, politics contained within Dreamland uh, itself, the, the novel Dreamland itself, a bit later. But I, we, you know, so far we've just described we've described the setting, we've described the kind of historical context, but sort of this isn't. This is a sort of a, uh, a, a sort of just, just a description of a society. There is a story and there are yeah. people at its heart. And there is particularly our narrator, Chance. Um, and she is such a clearly defined character. Like we, I mean, I remember having this feeling when I, um, read your first book, The Last Kings of Sark, like, the within within the first few paragraphs you you know the person you kind of have a you have a kind of a rounded sense of them which doesn't mean they're not going to surprise you and do things which uh which um you know which 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 kind of come out of the blue as everyone can but they're just they they exist in a very real way very quickly um and i'm just curious about how she came to you like uh how you sort of was it sort of through the idea of uh either there's this, this 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 near future margate that you sort of you you em- envisioned the the people who would live in there or were, were the characters kind of there first and you sort of their world, world build up around them or perhaps neither
1: that's so kind of you to say adam first of all i really really that means a lot to me um it's you know one of the weird things, having been writing this book for so long is that some of those questions of its genesis are kind of blurry now because I'm like mm-hmm, what, sure, yeah. what was and it's been through so many iterations I it was so difficult and i i mean we can talk about that later i i, I have so much um solidarity and and um, what well, anyone writing a second novel first novel or any kind of novel that's finding it hard i um I have been through that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um With chance. Yeah, I was talking to someone about it recently. And actually, like, I've been trying to write a second novel for a long, well, not that long a time, but maybe a year and a half, two years since I finished The Last Kings of Sark. And nothing stuck at all. I was, Mm -hmm. it felt so kind of like, I'll take this thing that I'm interested in and this thing, put it together. And there was never that like alchemical moment where it felt like it was real. And the last Kings of Zot came out, I think, on like the 13th of November or something. This was a long time ago. We're talking Mm -hmm. 2013 now. Um, Mm -hmm. And about 10 days later, basically all of the bones for Dreamland lined up. And again, that's not to say it was easy because Mm. it was really, really difficult. And I built all of the bones wrong and had to break them and rebuild them again. But I did have a sense of, I really had a sense of chance. I really had a sense of the kind of like essence of the atmosphere I really had a sense of coal. I just had a sense of her like defiance and her strength um and I think that but I but I think I allow myself to have more fun with her kind of humor as as time went on like Mm -hmm. I I kind of again writing into that what my idea of what a post-apocalyptic or kind of dystopian novel should be like that the language should be as spare and clipped as this devastated world we live in and actually when I I love dialogue I love dialogue Mm -hmm. I love kind of yeah I love people talking and hearing them talk and hearing them play as well and I think that like she became fleshed out when I when I allowed her to like have fun she's still still like she's scrappy and she's sparky and she's smart but like yeah she has she has fun and and that was really that was really really nice to write because Jude the main character of The Last Kings of Sark she has she kind of can be funny sometimes but she's really self-conscious and really kind of held back and I think that's accurate for her character but it was quite nice to be with someone who was like a little bit more um with a little
0: bit more spark i guess yeah 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 it's it's really interesting there's there's two things um i want to pick up on there. the first this idea of having fun in um and i'm going to keep annoyingly using the shorthand post-apocalypse and with with the caveat that everyone knows <laughs> that i don't think it's a post-apocalyptic book but um it like there is um there's, there's this kind of assumption that that sort of the world is devoid of fun the world is devoid of humor and yet, one of the things that people often say um, when they meet people in peril or in times of catastrophe, whether that be famine or war or something like that, is that they're sort of in all but the most extreme cases, there remains this spark of fun, of life, of humour. And it's that was one thing that um, that was very sort of striking about uh, Dreamland. The other thing that you mentioned, and I was going to come to this later, but it's um, but since you've brought it up. Is the question of language. Um, and again, as you say, like there is a certain type of language one might expect from this future. And yet one thing I've really enjoyed is sort of, and I think maybe this is a sort of British sensibility as well, but certain certain turns of phrase. Um I'm coming off the top of my head now, but I think, you know, one person calls somebody else a twat at the moment and things like that, which which is a kind of language which, you know, was People might think, "Oh, that sort of thing will have been will have passed into know, that's uh... the
1: finest line in the novel." <laughs>
0: <laughs> she Uses the word Well, dash. it was my favourite. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, um, okay, here's an example of that. Maybe there's a line actually stole it. I stole it from the Daily Mail comments section, but um, someone had was read. Someone was you know like responding to <laughs> a news piece and said there's a mug in every cupboard and that really got me as this idea of like <laughs> people just like, there's so much there's so much humor and pleasure in the way people employ language and that like I think it's exactly as you say that doesn't that doesn't go when times are hard quite the opposite mm-hmm. like we, we just lived through a pandemic I was alone for the first five months and I didn't necessarily always talk to people on the phone but like I texted the whole time there's just a kind of we need to to just let things out receive things in I don't know I just think I that's there, there are there are great examples of closed futures that have that still have a kind of a chattiness and and like a, mm-hmm. um there definitely are but I really 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 enjoyed that part of it and it did feel it did just feel more authentic to me watched a man walk into the sea. Not walk, he was running, the top half of his body moving faster than his legs through the water. Mm -hmm. He stumbled once, twice, then thrashed his way back to standing. Mm -hmm. At first, from where I was, it looked like he was making his way to a box that was floating. Then I saw it was a piece of clothing, a jacket, a jacket filled with air, a soft dome puffing out above the water, the shape of a jellyfish back. When the man got closer, he took the jacket in his hands. He turned it over. It was heavier than it looked. There was a body zipped inside it. The man started yelling. He yelled again and again. I jumped down from the broken tidal barrier where I was sitting and started to run over. When I got closer, I saw it was a child's body, small in his hands. The man lifted the body out of the water, held it up to his chest, then started to make his way back to land, waves crashing white against his shoulders. As he got closer, the sounds he was making got louder. When he hit sand, he dropped to his knees. It was a boy he was holding, four, five, thin. He held the boy's head in the palm of his hand. He touched his face. He put the boy down on the beach and started pushing at his chest. He tried mouth to mouth. But when I got to them, I saw water coming out of the boy's lips. More and more and more of it. My son, he said, he's my boy. I started to say I could get help, that I could go and find someone, but it was too late. The kid's lips, his eyes, his fingertips were purple. Mm -hmm. Yesterday he went missing, the man said. Yesterday, but I had to work, I had to get work. I left him with his sister. I never should have left him. The man held the boy like I used to hold blue. His arms like a hammock. The boy's limbs hung slack either side. A walnut filled my throat till it blocked it completely. I couldn't swallow, felt like I couldn't breathe. The sea started to pool in the dipped sand around us. You have to get off the beach, I said. Each wave brought the tide higher. Please. And finally, I got him to walk with me, his son in his arms, water dripping from both their clothes. My legs felt heavy as I climbed the stairs back to our flat. My mum was lying on the sofa when I got there. She was stone asleep, her face tilted towards her shoulder. I went over, ran my fingertip under her left eye. When they're open, her eyes can look a bit soft now, like soap left in water. I made space next to her legs and found a place for my body at her side. You never once saw inside my house, did you? Even when you came to the door, I blocked you looking in. I stood on my tiptoes to make myself bigger and pushed you back out into the corridor. Not that the corridor was any better. I don't know exactly how long it's been since I last saw you, standing right here in my doorway. Maybe a year and a bit, maybe longer, but it's hard to tell. However long it's been, it's been long enough for me to have forgotten the details of what you looked like. Sometimes I know the edges how your skin met your hair, but the most important parts, how your face made sense in the middle, I lost that one day. You said you would come back. You looked me in the eye and said that. Well, if you had, this is what you would have seen. Soft wood, black cracks, fridges in the road, the broken spines of old rides at Dreamland, me and my mum tangled silent on the sofa, I didn't tell her what had happened at the beach. We didn't speak. At some point, she fell back asleep. And then it came, the knock on the door. Her eyes shot open. Mine did too. Two heavy, dull beats. The gap between them slightly too long. That's not Davy, she said. She turned to me. It isn't Davy, is it? I shook my head. I felt my body freeze. After the knock, a sound that shouldn't have been possible—the sound of a key sliding into our lock—we
0: talked um, earlier about um, the, the the fact that chance has fun, um, and one of the reasons she has fun is that she has somebody to have fun with. Um, I mean, particularly There's in the early chapters to have of fun the book. Sorry,
1: she lots of people to have fun with. Actually, she
0: she, she does, but I, I'm thinking particularly of Davy. Um, <laughs> and uh yeah this this just seemed to sort of be he seemed to be the sort of the, the 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 source of a lot of um a lot of sort of goodness in in chance's life in fact and that's and, you know so they uh when they're uh young i, mean, they're, I remember right there's slight difference in age but they're relatively Lovely.
1: i think they're, all this, they're the same age i mean the thing is they're in the same class but mm-hmm. the school system has been dismantled to the to the point of you know there being huge age ranges within the same class and actually schools are uh-huh. good when they're about um 10 11 so yeah. But, but yeah they are roughly the same age he's one year older than her actually yeah she's she's yeah he's one year older than her
0: mm-hmm. but the thing that kept coming back to me because during the novel without giving anything away their sort of their relationship kind of ebbs and flows um in different ways but there was really um at the core of it, the phrase that kept coming back to me—I um, can't remember where I first heard it—but I really love it—is that you um, you can't make a new old friend. And there's just something this kind of the the portrayal of the the friendship and the closeness between uh, Chance and Davy felt very um, very authentic and very kind of and very kind of lived. And I recognise this isn't a question; it's more of a comment. This is
1: so—I like, I love this podcast. It's just like, <laughs> nice it. so like okay, um, no, that's really nice to hear too. I think. And again, from The Last Kings of Sark, which is about a triangular relationship between two no. girls and a guy. I think it is, a it is the, the triangle is less, um, the triangle spends less time together in this book, but it's still present. And I think mm-hmm. that's always been, it's always been a really interesting um, type, like form of relationship to me in a way of looking at relationships. And I think you can kind of like elliptically see the kind of power, different power relationships through it as well. But I I really love Davey. He's one of my favorite characters. And like, he's not, he's, he's, I just want, I just wanted it to be socially realistic and I wanted it to feel real. And, you know, Davey's like gross in some ways and he'll like grab Chance's boob. And he's not, he's, he's, he, 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 he's, he has, he has many problems. He's not monolithically good. No Hmm. one's monolithically good, but he loves her fiercely. and yeah, I think the the observer review kind of pointed out that there are two love stories in this book, and there are really three as well because chance and blue too. Um, and actually, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of love in different forms um, throughout the book. I, I really wanted mm. wanted it to be suffused with that, even in its most like complicated, unrequited, ambiguous iterations you know yeah That's yeah yeah. The stuff of life that is the stuff of life
0: Let, let's talk about the um the other sort of point in that relationship triangle then um which is this is, is a character frankie who is not not in the book a great deal and i'm gonna again i'm gonna tread very carefully about what i say because i don't want to spoil things for people but like um, her actual sort of yeah physical presence in the book is you know, is, is relatively limited compared to um, a lot of the other characters and yet her presence looms large because the book is essentially addressed to her so it's uh it's a first person narrative but chance is talking to to Frankie um and I'm interested in that as a sort of a choice of the sort of of sort of, of uh of a, as, as as an authorial choice because it uh it seems sort of Uh, Yeah, it seemed quite an unusual. one. I was trying to think if if I if I'd come across other novels that that use that uh, that use that voice, a first person voice, but specifically addressing another character in the book.
1: Yeah, so it has these moments of like the epistolary um, form, I guess, and they are they are fleeting. It's not kind of it's not constant, but she is a present. She is a presence throughout. I, I really like it as a mode because I think you get to kind of capture a certain like tension between. the the narrator and the person that she's talking to. And I think, again, like I do, I am a real nostalgist. I love the kind of like, I love that. I love like melancholy and kind of bittersweetness and those kind of Mm -hmm. tilting Feelings, and I think you can get that from like there's a sense of I mean, like The Last Kings of Sark is drenched with longing that's kind of very like latently homosexual, but it's not like fully fleshed yet. This is a lot gayer, this book. Um, and the longing isn't the longing's for a different reason, it's not because of Mm -hmm. um love that can't be expressed, it's because of Mm -hmm. other elements in the plot which have kind of conspired. conspired against against chance um but i really i really enjoyed writing in that form and yeah it's it's a it's i'm really i'm super interested to see how readers will um relate to this mm. story because i think i've had there have been some readers who've been kind of i've I, there've been very divergent reactions to it in terms of like whether people like or don't like frankie and i think that's a really that's uh-huh. an interesting um it's an interesting, I can hold both and understand both. I know where I am, but yeah, I'm really interested to see what readers think.
0: It's interesting that you you talk about it as a much gayer book than the previous <laughs> one. Book, because, yeah. But in, in one sense, uh, I mean, I, I, I see exactly what you mean because it's sort of, it's, um, let's say the kind of, the homosexuality is so much more sort of sort of expressed and yeah. un, sort of, um, sort of un, maybe uncomplicated in a way. It's, but... But that's one thing that also sort of struck me was that it's uh, it, it seemed to sort of of this kind of um, this sort of uh, quite bleak future. One thing that wasn't bleak about it seemed to be people's attitude attitudes to sex and sexuality, um, and it seemed it, it seemed to ring true um, with, for example, when I've taught taught students who sort of in their sort of late teens, early twenties, who when they talk about sexuality and gender and things like that are much less kind sort of uh confused <laughs> much less kind of um much more more certain in, in in how they talk about it and how these things could express them I think of like um people of my sort of age you know who sort of maybe grew up where in sort of the final moments where you know it was the love that dare not speak his name so yeah, I know so it's...
1: and it's so weird because my first book only came I and mean, I wrote it 10 years ago but just culture, just in terms of like the culture that we live in, it's changed so completely. Yeah. Like, I remember when my first book for the record, if anyone doesn't know, I am in a relationship with a woman. I, you know, yeah. Um, uh, Hylia, mm-hmm. I love you. Um, <laughs> but. What I was going to say, yeah, like, I remember when my first book was coming out, like, it was a real kind of, like, hedge your bets, definitely don't do anything in gay media, you know, like, try and keep it, not not that anyone said really? that, not that anyone said it so directly, but it uh-huh. definitely, it was definitely a kind of, it definitely wasn't, like, a selling point, and it feels, mm. I don't think, I mean, this book isn't being marketed as, like, you know, great lesbian love story though it should be but but I just mean I just mean it's so interesting how it's changed so fast in a brilliant way um and yeah with this I think I keep on saying this but I all of the decisions I made in the book were to do with it being feelings as authentic to me as I as I could get it and I really yeah it's like the kind of one of the utopian things in the book is there's not it's not a big it's like, that's not remarked upon that Chance is having a relationship with a woman. I mean, it will be
0: remarked right. yeah.
1: upon if she's having sex with anyone and her family are going to kind of make comments about that. But this doesn't make a difference that it's a, a man or a woman. And I think that that's, that just feels, you know, like our generation, the generation below us, the generation coming up. I mean, I'm not naive about these things. Of course we can have, like can double back and retreat to kind of the darkest days of horrible homophobia but I do that just feels that does just feel realistic realistic to me in the way in which we're going and in terms of that story I think so many of the so many of the very few narratives we had at this this time that you're talking about when it's like the love that cannot express its name you know it was how do you accept yourself can you accept yourself can you come out of mm-hmm. your family and 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 yeah, their challenges are decidedly different. Like I wanted to give them the same narrative potential that any, like a straight love story has. You know, they've got different problems. They're yeah. problems, but they've got different <laughs> problems.
0: That, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because like, I think often when we think of sort of uh, regression in society, we kind of perhaps assume that things will regress across the board and with sort of equal sort of equal amounts if you like so sort of you know as a society becomes more uh divided through wealth it will also perhaps become more racist and also become perhaps more sexist and more homophobic and in fact it's 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 perhaps not quite as straightforward as that this it's got it's almost like a sort of a graphic equalizer you might have on, on a stereo, like yeah. you could kind of turn some things up and some things down in a way.
1: Exactly. And who knows, who knows? Like we, we can't, you can't predict the future. And that's one of the things that's like, my first book was so, um, was very semi-autobiographical and people would ask that and you, you would kind of end up saying yes has yes it is um and I, I like
0: that as a qualifier <laughs> very semi very semi-autobiographical very
1: very, very semi <laughs> no I mean of course it was you know it was altered and but I really wanted to the reason I chose to set part of the reason I chose to set it in the near future was just because I really wanted to write about something that by it's very nature hadn't happened yet. And I can't get in there. So yeah, I can't, I, I mean, I obviously hope that we, that we maintain the kind of absolute like flexibility and openness. Um, that's that's shown in the book to that, but, but yeah, th- this is definitely not a kind of, yeah, at the same time, what I'm trying to say is it's not a prediction necessarily. It's just mm-hmm. an imagination. Work yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think also like all, all sort of works of the imagination I mentioned, for example, um, uh, the two writers that, uh, the book evoked in the introduction say, so there's J.G. Ballard and there was, uh, Margaret Atwood. And I think one thing that it's become kind of a cliche to say, but like, you know, kind of about their, their books is that they say, they say as much about our contemporary society as they do about sort of any future society. Uh, and one thing I think, one area where I think that's particularly sort of, um, clear in, uh, Dreamland is the, the presence of the kind of, Charismatic, uh right-wing authoritarian politician um who, in your book, name um, Adam Biles.
1: No, that'd be great though.
0: <laughs> Come on,
1: <laughs> you not be less like that. <laughs>
0: um, Rex Winstable. Um, uh, yeah. That would that would be amazing if you <laughs> 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 I'm just imagine sort of you know. You've got a vendetta against someone. Not saying it's me, but then you—you <laughs> you just sort of name the the right wing horror thought, in your book. I just book.
1: thought that could be a really good curveball in the podcast. <laughs> you know, when there's, no, um, it's Rex Winstable and then it becomes Edwin. My- Edwin, My- there's kind of there's a, yeah. there's a there's a there's a transition from one type of demagogue to another type mm. of demagogue. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and how would you sort of define those? The difference between those two types of demagogue.
1: Well, the only way I can redefine it is the way it's defined in the book. I'm trying to think back to um, what's said about it. Yeah, Winstable is kind of like a bit old school Fudding doesn't have that much charisma. It's kind of like you turn off the TV when you had him on, but it's kind of popular. And then Edwin Meyer, his protege, comes up and he's he's just kind of – he falls into that mode of – I wouldn't – I mean – yeah, like Nigel Farage, he's definitely a lot. I mean, he's definitely not in the mold of Nigel Farage, so I find Nigel, Nigel Farage so globally ridiculous. But he's definitely in that mold of politicians, be it Boris Johnson, Trump, even these these kind of characters who have that. He's described as a kind of like he'll have a he'll have a pint with you. It's that kind of like Teflon. Um, can say anything can do anything, man of the people kind of yeah that's that's his that's his that's his mode I guess
0: yeah i I guess the word that came to me when sort of thinking about the difference between the two as you present them which seemed to be very pertinent as say compared to the some of the politicians we've been living with enduring for the last uh, few years is winstable doesn't have a s- is, is there's nothing ironic about rex winstable whereas mayor there's this kind of irony to his presentation yeah. which seems to make h- him more dangerous in a way because it allows him to say certain things and do certain things and act in certain ways and people to sort of not be entirely sure whether yeah. he's serious and then they can kind of it's there's something i think irony is, is sort of a, a very dangerous thing in this context
1: i think it's really important and that slipperiness and that ability to say something but not really mean it but definitely really mean it and um, yeah and I, I i enjoyed playing with that and i just want to say from this perspective um the the narration really stays quite clearly with chance throughout the whole book these 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 politicians that we're discussing they're seen in these very like elliptical ways you don't get we don't kind of jump mm. up to like some a geopolitical sure. scene like it's very kind of it's as experienced by 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 the characters but but yeah that was really fun too like how do you write global happenings mm. in a way that feels like in a in a way that feels accurate to how individual human beings encounter inf- encounter information pass it make sense of it all of this stuff like mm. i think that was that was that was an interesting thing to do particularly for someone like me who is phobic of kind of exposition and trying to mm. to the point of like possibly doing being too subtle sometimes so that was a real like juggle for me like how do you how do you do that
0: what, one way i think you um kind of are able to kind of give us a sense of the politicians and their politics without being too explicit about it is by kind of and this comes back to the concept of language is that sort of showing us the sort of the mm-hmm. the way that language could be kind of corrupted and um and sort of sort of overturned i guess uh, sort of uh, by uh, by these kind of regimes the one thing i'm thinking of which is an example of one one of the policies that uh Um, is sort of instigated in the, in, 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 in Margate is this concept of land save, Mm -hmm. which is written as one word with a uh, capital S in the, in the middle. And it just sort of, it seemed so kind of sort of on the nose for the kind of, a uh, slightly slick, slightly branded, um, but deeply sinister policy. Yeah. Somebody like um, Mayor would, uh, yeah, would bring in.
1: Well, that I, I, this is so nice. Like, I just want to say, this is the most in-depth conversation I've had about the book with anyone, and it's only just out today. Apart from my editor and you know people, but so I just want to say thank you to you, Adam. It, it, and it's kind of it's just a curious sensation because you. Spend so long in, in the world of books. It's like, oh, wow, I can kind of talk to people about it. Have I read the book recently enough? Do I know anything about it? I do. Um, but, yeah, I think, well, that, I think recent years as well have shown an ability to kind of, like, package up ungodly, awful policies um, mm-hmm. in a way that's, that attempts to kind of, sugarcoat them I mean it's just it happens all the time and I I do work in advertising as well sometimes so those elements of kind of like the branding and the slippery language about it that that does um I do have some experience of that too Uh like you know seeing 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 the ways in which like you know how can we dress up zero hours contracts to Mm -hmm. make them sound like they're empowering you know like it's just it's just the stuff of (sighs) what people do yeah
0: um, now, we're almost out of time, but one thing I would just like to pick up on, and again, it's sort of, <laughs> it's in the description. I can't remember if it's if it's about uh, uh, Winstable or Mayer now, but um, you'll, you'll be able to tell me. Um, and the, the line just made me laugh. And knowing that I was, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're a writer and knowing that you come from a family of writers, um, was the line, all the worst people in the world, they're brilliant at telling stories. Now, I'm not implying that you're saying that all people who are brilliant at telling stories are the worst people in the world, but it just seemed a. Um, that's it just seemed quite a, a stark message to. Uh,
1: <laughs> no, I think it's funny. So that's actually about Cole, who is um right, okay. who is Chance's mum's boyfriend, who is a kind of, mm-hmm. he is violent. um He's awful in many ways. He's also charismatic, and I think I think mm-hmm. you know in terms of like trying to create whole characters that feel real, I think that to me felt accurate too like he is he's hideous in so many in mm-hmm. many ways and so many ways in which he treats um the women in his life but he has these odd flashes of tenderness towards them too and he's really really good at telling stories and, and actually what chance is chance is trying to tell her friend caleb who's this kind of older guy who has an after school club for for kids and she's trying to tell him a story that Cole has just told so well but she gets mm-hmm. the punchline wrong and she's like oh like Cole tells it better and Caleb is then like well all the best people in the world and uh, all the worst people in the world are brilliant at telling stories but that's kind of a funny thing too because Caleb used to run a bookstore so he's mm-hmm. he's probably he's the most kind of like he's the only like bookish character amongst them and Chance does read actually and um even though she hasn't ever had a formal education she 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 reads but yeah I think I don't know like it's it's funny like I I like that line I don't necessarily um believe in it that's not I don't think that's my um that's my like theory of the world at all sure. but I thought I just I wanted to kind of capture that idea of like how how charisma and the ability to shape something and make people laugh or make people feel under your um under your spell can often not always at all and just sometimes I guess rather than often people speak a lot more with a lot more kind of like declarativeness than they actually Mm -hmm. but how that can often be put to sometimes be put to malevolent ends or, or 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 offset very very bad things about what's underneath yeah, Rosa
0: that is all we've got time for do come to Paris um, you when can. you can I'll
1: be, I'll be walking and <laughs> I'm actually the channel's just there I can see France very occasionally I, so yeah I'll, I'll get my get my um, I was about to say I'll get my speedos on I will not do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, do and I'll try and get there Adam thank you so much
0: thank you and congratulations again you have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me Adam Biles Links to the books discussed today are available in the show notes for this episode, alongside links to our online store and details about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating wherever you listen. It can really help spread the word. Production of this podcast was by David Grove, and the intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album, Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for
1: listening.